Hallelujah. Well, bless your heart. Let's turn to James chapter 1 and let's, let's pray together. And let's ask the Lord to speak to us tonight as we study the Word of God together. I want you just to pause. Some of you have had a busy day. Some of you have had, a, had a, maybe even a troubling day. Some of you may have had a blessed day. Regardless of, of where your day has, has been and where you've been, let's just pause. And let's open our hearts to hear what he has to say to us tonight. Father, we open our hearts to you and we pray you would speak to us through the ministry of the word of God. Change our lives by the power of your word. And everybody said a big amen. Amen. Tonight we begin a journey through James. So I want you to turn to the book of James. But before I get into the beginning to introduce this book to you, let me say this to you. Let me say that uh, there's kind of two or three ways where God can make a big impact in your life. I just talked to Mistia. She just returned from a retreat. It was just a powerful, high-energy impact in her life. <coughs> Pardon me. And as a result, hopefully, she's been changed and transformed. How many of you appreciate those times when God just shows up in a dynamic way, in a supernatural moment, and just boom, and I mean, things just change and are transformed in your life. You ever had one of those moments? I've got my, I've got my hands up. I've had a few of those. Not a lot. And they don't, hey, they don't happen all the time. There's special moments with God, uh, you know, that, that just seem to come our way. And we all look at those and we go, whoo, man, God changed my life. And then there are times when we, and this, this is more, uh, I think probably more the norm, then there are times when we just consistently uh, give ourselves over to some revelation knowledge, some truth, some teaching, and through the course of that ministry of the Word, our lives are transformed, and it's a process. I really believe that this journey through James has the capacity that when you look back in a, in a few weeks when we get through this series, you'll go, wow, this series, this teaching has transformed and changed my life. Amen. And it's a process. You, hey, and, and if in the middle of it somewhere you have one of those boom God moments in your life, so be it. But let me tell you, most of the time, it's through the consistent daily interaction with what God is saying to you and a progression forward into God's will and plan for your life. As you hear what he's saying over the course of time, you look back and you go, wow, things have changed in my life. I tell people this all the time. I've probably told some of you in times when we've sat down and talked together uh, and, I, and I've given you, uh, you know, People, uh, I can diagnose maybe some of your issues, and I can also, I'm better. I may not know all the reasons why you be, are struggling the way you are, but I can give you a prescription. I can give you a prescription, and I can, I'll say, I say to people all the time, okay, I want to give you three things to do this week. Here's the prescription. You do this, this, and this. And you do this, this, and this, and let's talk about it in a week. Let's, let's get seven days under our belt of just, of, of just taking the medicine and applying it into our life. And I tell people this all the time. And if you'll just take the medicine and you'll begin to do what I, regardless of how you feel. How many of you know when you first start taking medication, uh, you, you don't feel good, but you take the medicine. And, you know, uh, uh, I tell, I have doctors tell me all the time. They say, now you got to take it all. Because if you don't take it all, you know, you may not get it all this, whatever, the gobbledygook out of your system. And so you got to go through the process. But as you begin to take the medication uh, uh, over the course of time, things begin to change. Okay. And so I say, you got to take it. And I said, we can look back over the course of however long and we'll be able to say, look what the Lord has done. Somebody look around at your neighbor and say, look what the Lord has done. That's where we all want to be, right? That's where we all want to be, right? We want to be able to be at the place where we go, wow, God did something dynamic in our life. And we see genuine, bona fide, validated transformation in our life. <coughs> Pardon me. I believe that'll happen 
Uh, not only with this book of James, as we study the book of James, but any area of our life, if we'll just give ourselves over to the ministry and the study of the Word of God and, and allow it to uh, uh, set up residence in our life uh, and begin to make a change, we'll look back and we go, you know what? I'm not the way I was before. Things have changed in my life. In fact, you may not even see it a lot, but other people will see it. They'll say, whoa, man, things are different in your life. It just becomes a natural process for you, but other people look and they say, man, there's some things going on in your world, and it looks good. So with that in mind, let's jump into the book of James, and I want you to, I want to give you kind of the, uh, I want you to just begin read this book, meditate on this book, find, let God speak to you personally from this book. Don't wait till next Wednesday to read this book again. You can read it in just about 10 minutes, the whole book, but it's a, it's a, it's a marvelous, in fact, as I've been studying this, uh, my eyes have been opened and revelation knowledge have come to me even as we jump in. And so here we go. Everybody say, here we go. All right. I want to introduce the author to you of the book of James. Anybody here know the author of James? Nobody? Okay. Anybody want to guess? James. Okay. All right. James. But that's a trick question. I said, I said, I got Mastias to shook up. She was going to guess outside the book. James wrote the book. But now here's the interesting thing. It's, James is a very common name in Jesus day. And in, in the times of the early church, it's a very common name. In fact, there were three Jameses, if you can say that, if that's correct. Uh, there were, there are three Jameses in the new Testament. And one of those three wrote this book, and I'll identify him for you in just a moment. The first James that we see in the New Testament uh, is James, the son of Zebedee. He's the brother of John. You remember James and John? They are disciples, and they followed Jesus. In fact, at one point, their mom tried to talk Jesus into having one of them sit on the left hand and the other sit on the right hand in heaven. You remember that? They were the sons of thunder. Okay. Now, James, the brother of John, did not write James. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 12, he was one of the church martyrs. He was killed by Herod. I don't know if you knew that or not. So James, the brother of John, who walked with Jesus during his three years of, uh, of active ministry, uh, he was martyred in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. And then there's another James in Matthew 10, 3. He's James, the son of Alphaeus. And it just says he's a disciple. Uh, he didn't write James. He's just a disciple by the name of James. And then there's another James. Anybody else know the, the third James? If you can identify him in any special way, he's the author of the book of, of James. Anybody know how he's connected? Yes? He's the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. He's the one who wrote the book of James. Now, interesting insight about the, the what we'll call the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, I want to walk you through... Well, let's see, one, two, three, four passages of Scripture to kind of show him to you in Scripture. And here, go to John chapter 7. Interesting little insight about the brothers of Jesus. And I don't know how many he had. I didn't study this, but it's, he had brothers. I don't know how many kids Mary had after uh, Jesus, but she had James. Okay, and so there's brothers. Now, look at this in verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Gal for he did not walk want to walk in Galilee because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. See his brothers are interacting with him. For no one does anything in secret for while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. James, the one who wrote the book of James, throughout the ministry of Jesus, did not follow Jesus and did not believe him. How many of you know sometimes those closest to us, we tend to miss who they really are. We have a perception and understanding of them. And so James did not follow Jesus through his earthly ministry on planet earth. But 
Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to go back and forth. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul the apostle is talking about the gospel. And he's defining the gospel rather clearly. And he says this. <coughs> oh, let me jump in to verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also re- received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Everybody say, Amen. How many of you know the resurrection is the, core, the, the cross, what we're about to experience and about to uh, you know, celebrate, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus is the core of the gospel. And he just gave the core of the gospel. It says he was buried. Uh, <coughs> pardon me. Verse 4. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now catch this. And he was seen by Cephas. Who's that? Peter. Everybody says that's Peter. He was seen by Cephas. That's Peter. Then by the twelve. That is the twelve apostles. After that he was seen by, by over five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So the resurrected Christ, before he ascended to heaven, he revealed himself to over 500 people. In fact, if you remember, if you go to Acts chapter 1, the resurrected Christ spent a number of days, I think it's 40 days, prior to his ascension to heaven. He rose from the dead, he spent, I think, about 40 days ministering to these disciples. And to the, and to the, and to the, the fledgling early church. Now, follow with me. We're going to get to James. I think this is very interesting. It says, <coughs> in verse six, he was seen by 500. And then verse seven. After that, he was seen by who? And then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Because Paul had a revelation of the resurrection, resurrected Christ, but not at the same time. Uh, his was a special, different one. So here's James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't follow Jesus. He doesn't believe in Jesus. But when Jesus rose from the dead, and I think it's very interesting, and you're going to see why, because James and Paul interacted in the, uh, throughout the, the ministry of the early church. Here's Paul saying, oh, and by the way, the resurrected Christ made himself manifest to James. Now, I would have loved to have been in that convo. And most theologians believe, just like we do, when we have a revelation of the resurrected Christ, we realize who he is. And James had a revelation of who he was when he, ministered, when he was ministered to uh, when he was ministered to by Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And the next time we see him, of course, this is, this is a record Paul is giving of that, of, of, of James re, uh, having a revelation of the resurrected Christ. Now go back to Acts 15. Thank you, sir. A little of both. How sweet of you. I appreciate that. Acts chapter 15 is what's called the Jerusalem Council. Now the church is in full swing in Jerusalem uh, and there's a, there's a conflict, nothing new under the sun. There's a conflict in the church. How many of you know there, that, that's normal when churches have disagreements and conflicts? Acts 15 is called the Jerusalem Council and they are having an issue about circumcision. And the Jews are saying, hey, you're not, a lot of them were saying, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. And they're, they're, this is such a big deal because, hey, they've been, this has been a big part of their religiosity all their life up until this new gospel came along, which is said, for by grace you're saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. So they're having this conflict, and man, they're all gathered together. Uh, and uh, let me see who gets up. Peter gets up and speaks. And then Paul uh, and, and I think it's Paul and Silas get up and speak. And they all share <coughs> uh, their perspective. And then in verse 13, and after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. 
And he begins to declare and he begins to finalize this, this issue. And basically when you, you, you can read through it later, he comes down and, and I think the King James says it this way. My sentence is. In other words, he had the last word in the matter. This is how we're going to handle it. Hey, Peter just told us all about these Gentiles getting born again and filled with the Holy Ghost. And now you guys want to tell them that they're not saved because they hadn't been circumcised. And he, 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 he kind of slams the gavel on the, on the deal and they all say amen. And they write a letter to the, to the Gentiles and basically just say, hey, uh, don't worry about this circumcision thing. Just keep yourself holy and righteous before God. That's James. So we see James from Resurrection Day in the middle of the local church and a position most people think he was the actual pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he got up and he said, this is the way, we're not voting on this. We've discussed it. Here's the way it's going to be. Boom. That was James. And so he's the one who wrote the book of James. Now, one more verse I want to show you. Uh, so we see him now. He's, now he's a leader in the church. He's a man of great influence in the church. Now go to Galatians chapter 1. <coughs> Romans, Corinthians, Galatians chapter 1. Paul's kind of sharing his testimony with the Galatians. Uh, and, and here's kind of the way Paul's life went. You remember in Acts chapter 8 where he was smitten by the, whatever, the, the light of God or whatever, and he fell uh, fell down and, and he had this revelation of Jesus and he heard the voice of God, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Remember, that's his conversion experience. And he's smitten blind and, and he's carried away. And for three years, he kind of holds up, if, if you will, and God kind of works him over. Now, what was Paul in the busyness of doing prior to his conversion? Persecuting the church. In fact, if we had time, we'd go over there. They killed Stephen. And Paul the apostle is killing Stephen. And so the church is traumatized by persecution. How many of you know when one of your church elders and leaders gets, gets uh, killed for his faith, that would traumatize the church? So the church in Jerusalem has been traumatized. And James is a part of the leadership of this church. And he sees this persecution. He sees the pain and the trauma and the trial and the tribulation. And he sees, in fact, Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says, the church uh, was scattered abroad in Jeru from Jerusalem. Everybody but the apostles split the scene because of this serious persecution. It was serious. They saw Stephen lose his life, by, was it by stoning? And they said, you know what? That's not in our best interest. And there was a scattering. And Paul was at the helm of it. Okay? With that in mind, after three years of Paul's conversion, he comes back to Jerusalem. How many of you know you could have cut the tension with a knife? And it says in eight, verse 18... Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. Now, I would have liked to have been in that meeting. It says, and we spent 15 days together. How many of you know they're healing up and getting things right? And then the next verse, but I saw none other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. the pastor of the church, one of the key leaders, at least, of the church. Again, my hypothesizing goes to work here. But undoubtedly, the conversion of Paul is validated in the church's mind. And forgiveness is given. Can you imagine? How I many of you know Stephen was a good friend? They were friends. They were co-laborers in Christ. And here Paul makes note, because he wrote Galatians, we had our time together. And, the, and, and in my, from my perspective, 
because Paul's ministry is just beginning in reality, he submits himself to the governance of the local church. And James and Peter become his spiritual mentors. Now that, to me, is cool. And so that's James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't believe Jesus was, G- was the Son of God until after he rose from the dead. But after the resurrection, he plugs into the ministry of the local church and is foundational in the ministry and the, and the promotion, if you will, and the undergirding of Paul the Apostle who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. That's James. I'm liking this guy. How many of you are liking this guy? He's the half-brother of Jesus. But that's not, I mean, that's not his claim to fame. His claim to fame, if you will, is he submitted to the lordship of Jesus and God used him mightily in the history of the church. And had he and Peter not opened up to Paul the apostle, oh, how things would have been different. God had a plan. Everybody say God had a plan. Now, And here's an interesting note. Most scholars, and I'm not one, but most scholars put the, the, the writing of the book of James at about 50 A.D. Okay? And it was one of the first books to actually be penned, and the, partly one of the first letters that was actually penned that became the Scriptures. So I just think it's kind of interesting that James the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James was one of the first in line because it's going to sync up with what the message of James is all about. And I think it's pretty cool. And you'll begin to see it. So it's one of the first uh, voices, if you will, uh, that was, that was bre- the Bible says the Scripture was breathed by the inspiration of God. So, so James is one of the first guys to get the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to begin to formulate what we now hold in our hand as the Word of God. I'm liking this guy. How many of you are beginning to like this guy? With that in mind, here we go. That's kind of just, that's just a snapshot of the author and who he was and how he came to a place of influence in the, in the world and how God used him uh, to, uh, to uh, influence Paul the Apostle and, and be one of the primary leaders in the first foundational church. I want to give you a snapshot of him and a snapshot of the book of James in four thoughts. Let's look at James chapter 1. The, uh, the, first, uh, the first thought about James is this, his attitude. His attitude had been tuned up by the Spirit of God through his insight about who Jesus was Look in James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a what? A a what? Somebody say it out loud. A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who was this guy? He was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, in today's culture, and in my mind, it would be hard not to say, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ride in on his coattails. But how many of you know the resurrection of Jesus transformed in his mind who Jesus was to him? He's not my half-brother. He's not the guy who always was at odds with what we wanted to do in the house. He's the Lord. And I am his what? Bondservant. Now, when we think of slave, you could put the word slave there. We have a different connotation of the word slave, right? Like we were sold against our will into slavery and we are slaves. But that's not the context of this word. That's not the, that's not the connotation of this word. It, it, and what he's saying, I am a willing servant and slave to God. I have willingly chosen to lay down my life for who I serve. I am a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you know his attitude got tuned? 
to who he was in relation to who God is. That, that, hey, let me tell you, when you get that going on, that gives you a voice in the world. When you get that attitude and realize who he is and who you are. And you know what? That's not very, it's pervasive. I, I may use this word wrong. That means widespread, right? Pervasive. That's not pervasive in our culture today. When we think about church and we look at Jesus and who we are, we think, oh, he's the guy who, he's my savior, he's my healer, he's my this, he's all, and, 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 and we start to find, and he is all those things, but it's all about us, right? It's about all that he does for me. But how many of you know, it's really, the, the right attitude is, it's not about what he does for me, it's about what I'm going to do for him. I'm going to preaching right now on Wednesday night, I apologize. I'm his bond servant. And when you get that, you got, you've got a voice. That's his attitude. And now his audience. He's writing to who? The 12 tribes, which are what? Come on, say it out loud. Scattered abroad. <coughs> and why are they scattered abroad? Because of persecution. Acts chapter 1. In fact, let's go, uh, not Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 8. Let me show it to you. Let me show it to you. I want, to get, I, want you to, I want you to get used to moving around in your Bible here a little bit. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 7, as I mentioned earlier, Stephen's martyred. They stoned Stephen. And he knelt down and cried, verse 60 in chapter 7. He knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And with that, he said this, and he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to the death, to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were, catch this, all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I'm talking about a, a traumatized church, scattered. Hey, now, go back to Acts chapter 1 and 2. How many people got saved on Pentecost Sunday? 3,000 plus folks. Man, I'm, we're talking about a lot of folks. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 8, this thing, was, the Lord had been adding to the church daily, such as should being saved, be saved. And now persecution hit. And it says, And the devout man, verse 2, carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Now, catch this. Now, go back to what I was telling you about Saul and uh, Saul, who's later called Paul, and James and Peter after three years of Paul's conversion. And Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. There, and verse 4, therefore those who were scattered. Now here's the cool part. Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Though they were scattered, they were not in fear of the power of the gospel. And how many of you know many times pressure really produces progress? And we're going to talk about pressure and we're going to talk about trouble because that's the, one of the big themes of, of James is about how we handle the pressures of life. But his audience, now think of James. Now, this is uh, really about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to get into, uh, into chronology too much, but one of the first guys to get breathed on by the Holy Spirit gets burdened in his heart about all of these saints that they were so in love with and how they were growing together. The church was expanding and they had gotten scattered throughout all the regions. Now, Acts chapter 11 talks about they were scattered even further. And when they realized, and, and all these people who were scattered, the gospel was going forth. And the church said, hey, we got to go minister to them. So they sent Paul and Barnabas up there, I think as far as Antioch, I can't remember. You can read Acts chapter 11. And so they were beginning to minister to the scattered church. And James writes the first letter, and the first letter that is, that according to most, that was ever inspired of the Spirit of God in the Scriptures, was a letter to the church who were under still the pressure of persecution and lost their, you know, many of them left family, friends, houses, lands. 
blessing and were scattered. And James writes this letter to those that were scattered abroad. Now, I don't know how this affects you. How do we think of the, the book of James affects us? But let me just, uh, from the standpoint of its content and who it was written to, let me just say at the very least, the church in our world today, oh, and by the way, around the world, there is a persecuted church. In fact, a couple of years ago, I was in India preaching with Dr. Shibley at a global advanced pastors conference, and there was a contingent of pastors and church leaders who had been, their houses had been burned. They were from Orissa, and that's a certain part of North, uh, North, uh, East India. Their houses had been burned. Their churches had been burned. They had lost everything. They were nomads in, in the land, if you will, and couldn't go back to their homes because of bona fide persecution. And I had the joy of ministering to them. It was, it was, it traumatized me. These people, they looked like a blank slate. They had lost it all. <clears throat> we rallied around them, ministered to them, loved on them. There is a persecuted church. But here in America, not quite so. But let me tell you something. Our persecution is coming in a lot of different types of ways and pressures and political pressures and, and, and trying to press us and, and force us and to shut us up and keep the gospel from going forth. So this book is valid for us. How we handle the pressures of life that come against us. How many of you know the, the devil and his persecution, he didn't realize how much of, of the hand of God they, he actually was in, in God's purpose and plan. Because the gospel was spread all over the known world because the devil persecuted the church. And so James is writing to this persecuted church. His attitude, I'm a bondservant. His audience, man, I want to minister to these who've been scattered. And his admonition to them through the book of James, kind of the theme, what he's admonishing them in is basically persevere. Everybody say persevere. His, he's, he's hang on, persevere, endure, stand strong, stay the course. That's kind of what he's, he's writing to them. He knows they've been scattered and he knows and he's heard that there's, hey, there's great blessing and benefit happening. God's actually using this persecution for his glory. So he writes and he says, hey, don't quit, don't give up, persevere. Let me show it to you in James, this theme. James chapter one, verse, uh, I gotta get over there myself. James chapter one, you know this passage of scripture well, you've read it. My brethren, count it all joy when you what? Fall into various trials or tribulations. And catch verse 3. We're going to look at it again in a minute. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. And really, that word uh, patience is not like, uh, I'm so patient waiting on my wife as she prepares her makeup to go to. That's not the word. This is endurance. He said, count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. Somebody say endurance. Perseverance. So the first rattle out of the box now, get it, James, he's writing to this persecuted church. He's telling them, hey, man, get your, hey, it's, get the perspective here. Get the joy of the Lord because this pressure, this trauma, this trouble, it's only a test. And if you pass the test, it will actually work in your behalf and produce an endurance on the inside of you. Look down in verse, uh, verse 12. Blessed is the man who what? Say it out loud. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. There's the theme again of endurance. Look over in James chapter 4 verse 7. Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What's the theme of that verse? Stand strong. Endure. Resist the devil. Don't give up. Don't quit. He'll flee from you. Look over in chapter 5, verse 8. You also, oh gosh, 
I want to back up. Verse 7. Therefore be patient. (coughs) Same word, basically. Be persevering. Therefore be patient and persevering, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient or enduring. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's trying to tell them, hey, this is not going to last forever. You got to stand strong in the face of, 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 of trouble. You got to be patient. You got to be enduring. You got to establish your hearts. He goes on to say, verse, oh gosh, verse 10, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and endurance. In other words, look to those who've gone before you. They suffered like you suffered, but they endured as well. Look at here what he says. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord and that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. What's he saying here? Hey, listen, the hey. You're in the middle of some trouble. You're in the middle of some pressure here. But you just hang on because, hey, remember Job? It all turned out okay for him. And so that's his admonition. Persevere. And you know what? I think that's valid for today's church. Even though we're not getting, we're not necessarily losing our houses and our lands have been beaten or maybe stoned like Stephen was, there is pressure upon us. There's trouble and trauma uh, on, on our, uh, in our world that we've got to endure and persevere. And his advice, let me tell you about his advice in the book of James. Now, I'm giving you a snapshot and we're going to go back and look at a little more detail. But here's his advice about this pressure and this trouble and this trauma. Basically, it is this. Let your faith go to work in your behalf. This is how you're going to endure. This is how you're going to overcome. This is how you're going to get from point A to point B. This is how you're going to keep on keeping on in the middle of the pressures of life. By living a life of great faith. Because you cannot endure without great faith. Amen. Are you with me? In fact, what's the first words that he said? Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your what? Faith. The whole content of this book basically is, hey, if you're going to endure, if you're going to thrive in the middle of pressure, if you're going to uh, see the progress of God and get to the end of the story, like Job got to the end of the story with blessing and favor, you're going to get there if you stand strong in your faith. Everybody say amen. Let your faith go to work for you. In fact, turn over to James chapter 2. Let me show you. This is kind of one of the keynote passages about faith <coughs> in James. And you've heard it a lot. We'll look at it again. Oh, let me just jump in verse 4. I'm just going to read it and comment. We'll go back. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have what? Works. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you do not give them things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have what? Say it out loud. Works is what? It's dead. Now, he's talking <coughs> about living a life where your faith produces a product. It's not just faith sitting around saying, well, I believe. It's a faith that moves you into action and keeps you pressing forward in the purposes of God. Faith without works is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. How many of you know works doesn't save you? How many of you are only saved through faith? But when you get saved by faith, the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's according to his mercy. He saved us. We didn't earn it. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you are saved through faith. 
That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. We are saved by faith. You cannot work your way into right relationship with God. But what James is coming along saying, once you get saved and that faith saves you, a genuine faith will always be made manifest with how you live your life. And there will be evidence. Everybody say evidence. And he's ch- his advice to this persecuted church. As he says, you've got to persevere. He said, now how you're going to persevere is live a life of genuine faith that is made manifest in how you live your life, not just for yourself, but for others. Amen? And so that's his advice. And so let me tell you, kind of a theme, I've just kind of worked this out a little bit. The theme, the overarching theme of this book is really the importance of putting your faith to work in everyday living, activating your faith. How many of you know, all throughout Scripture, even in in Jesus, the disciples had to activate their faith. The woman with the issue of blood. If only I can touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. She had to activate her faith. And here comes James to the church. Pastor James, who is loving and forgiving and caring and thought, this persecuted church, i got to give them some of the most. What can I tell them in five? uh, He didn't break it down in chapters. What can I tell them in a a few words in a letter that, that will transform their life? They've got to live by faith. They've got to get through this with great faith that makes itself manifest through the evidence of a righteous life. Amen? In fact, did you know your capacity to stand strong and endure is directly related to your capacity to believe strong? Are you with me? You got to believe strong, and so uh, uh, that's what the whole thought is about. And how many of you could use some undergirding of your faith? Let me tell you something: Who's responsible for building your faith? We are. Now I can come along and build your faith, but listen. Ultimately, God's at the end of your life. God's not going to come to me and go, "Hey, what about Dana?" You didn't build her faith up enough. Well, he might, but let me tell you something. You're gonna get, Dana's going to stand before God and give an account with how she lived her life, right, Dana? I mean, I, hey, it, it's, it's, did, we, did we live it out by faith? Did we walk this thing out? Did we endure the process and trust Him and believe Him? And come to the other side like Job, he said, who, hey, it all worked out for Job. How many of you know he had a multiplied blessing because he continued to trust God. Amen. And so that's kind of the theme of this whole, of this whole, uh, uh, you know, and let me just say it this way. Your faith, don't leave home without it. Don't leave home without it. You got to live by faith, walk by faith. Your faith will get, in fact, what did John say? John, the, the brother of the other James, John said this. He said, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Not God's faith, our faith. Amen? So with that in mind, I'm going to give you three building blocks of faith under pressure. I don't know if there's anything I skipped up there. Your faith, there it is. You can't leave home without it. Let me give you some building blocks in the, in, in, from James chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 11. Three quick building blocks. It's nearly 8 o'clock. This won't take too long. The first one is this. That we learn from verse two through four. If you want, hey, if you want to strengthen your faith and the to help you face the pressures of life, here's here's a perspective that James gave this persecuted church. It is this: you've got to have a proper perspective under pressure. You've got to have a proper righteous understanding of the pressures and the tribulations and the troubles of life. Because if you don't get this part straight, you're gonna, your faith's going to be undermined in a milli moment. Most people don't understand trouble from God's perspective. In fact, did you know this? Jesus promised that we'd have trouble. 
I'll quote that in just a moment. But look in chapter 2. Hey, after he says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, he gets right to the point. He says, let me get you. Let me give you an attitude adjustment. I've had an attitude adjustment in my life. And I want to give you an attitude adjustment. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, uh, that word joy, I love it. It means calm delight. How many of you know it's a peaceful calm? Count when you fall into various trials. Now, most of us think a, a trial is when uh, we bounce a check or when we break a fingernail. Oh, Lord, I just paid $25 for these new nails and one already fell off. Or the lawnmower breaks. Oh, just trials and tribulations just piling up. Now, how many of you know that's not what these folks that were scattered abroad were dealing with? They weren't dealing with a broken nail or a bounce check. They were dealing with much more. And he says, listen, let me tell you, you, you want to get a righteous perspective? Just, you got to count it all joy. You got to count it as calm delight. How on earth can you do that? It's based in what you know, not just here, but here. Knowing that. Everyone say knowing that. No, in other words, when you know some things, it doesn't matter what's going on around you. If you've got the God perspective about your trouble or trauma, you can have calm delight because you know something. You know a greater truth than your present truth. Let me tell you something. Your present truth might be trouble, trauma, pain, agony, and sorrow, or gloom, despair, and oh, agony on me. That might be your present moment, but there's a greater overarching God truth that your present truth has to submit to. Does that make sense to you? That's why Paul could say in Romans 8, no, hey, let me tell you something. Hey, you need to know this, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. That's the greater God truth. Yeah, but what about my present truth? Hey, you got to cause your present truth to submit to God's greater truth. And that is... You stand fast, stand firm, and know this, and here's what you need to know, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Everyone say endurance. Now that's the cool part. And you realize, hey, this thing I'm going through, it's only a test. Everybody smile. Everybody smile. Tell your neighbor, it's only a test. It's just a test. It's just a test. Now, and when you pass the test, by, by just relaxing with calm delight, because you know it's only a test, and you know that this test, that this pressure and this trauma, this trial that you're going through, God's going to actually use it for His glory, and it's going to produce endurance, the capacity to stay the course. And now catch this part. And once you endure... God's real purpose and plan begins to be realized in your life. And he says, because you let, verse 4, you let this endurance have its perfect work. You let it work its way out. See, most people undermine the process of God in their life because they don't have the right perspective about their problems. Hello. James comes along and says, let's get right to the point here. If you don't get an attitude adjustment about your situation, you're going down with the count. Because catch this. He says, if you will let this thing work out, you let patience or endurance have its perfect work, you'll be perfect and complete. That means spiritually mature and whole, lacking no thing. And if you know that, if you know that, when troubles and traumas come your way, calm delight. Whew. This is just a test. She don't believe me. She's laughing at me to scorn here. It's just a test. It's going to work endurance in me. And endurance is going to produce 
maturity in me. And you know what God's real big deal is without you about you? He wants you and me to grow up. So we can be productive in life. You'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's a, hey, the first building by, let me see. Yeah, we better hurry. The first building block of faith in your life to help you through the pressures of life is a proper perspective concerning the circumstances of your life. Uh, and, And you need to understand endurance will allow me to advance in the face of opposition. I endure, I'm going, to out, I'm going to outsmart the opposition. Are you with me? In fact, Jesus, I said to John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. Everybody claim that verse. Woo, I'm in the world, you're going to have pressure. In fact, that word tribulation means pressure. In the world you're going to have pressure tribulation, but be of good cheer. There's that calm delight. Be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. It's based on what you know. You see, if you don't know the word, you can't, you can't walk this path. If you don't know that if you just trust him in the middle of the test, because you know, it's just a test and you know, it's going to produce endurance in you and endurance is going to uh, uh, validate you and cause you to grow spiritually be perfect and complete lacking in nothing if you don't have that understanding about your moment that hey god's got a bigger truth that overarches your present truth that that your present truth if you respond to the greater overarching god truth in your life it will deal with your present truth that's what he said there in the end of james just look at job come on he's got your best interest at heart Are you with me? Say amen. The second building block of faith that you can apply in the pressure moments of life is proper praying under pressure. Proper praying under pressure. Listen, I love this. The next thing he says, now, how many of you know under pressure, there's some needs that just automatically crop up? When you're under pressure, you're under a trial of trouble or temptation, all of a sudden you realize, I got to figure, I got to deal with this. How do I deal with this? I need wisdom. I need some, I need help. I need, and so James jumps right in. He gets right to, he's not very flowery here. He gets right into it. He says, oh, by the way, uh, let me tell you, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith uh, without any doubting, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a, wa- a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in his, all in his ways. Let, you know, in my mind, I read that and I go, James, you hardcore. These people have been traumatized. Have mercy. No, he's, get, he's getting right to the point. Listen, if you're going to walk through this process, you got to know how to get through this process. And you need wisdom from God. And so, hey, you, that's, where, that's where you've got to tap into the wisdom of God. How do I do that in the middle of this pressure moment? You've got to ask God. Everyone say, ask God. You've got to ask Him. You've got to pray in faith. Under pressure and trials and tribulations, you've got you've to tap into the wisdom of God. You've got to ask God. How many of you know the Bible says if you ask, you receive? You've got to ask God for wisdom and revelation, but you can't just ask Him. You, and in fact, let me just throw this out. He's the source of all wisdom and revelation in the middle of your trauma moment. I skipped James 1. Uh, yeah, James 1. Yeah, that's it. Flop the next one up there. Hit the next one. Uh, that's the one I skipped. Don't worry about that one. That has to do with wisdom and revelation, and, and uh, uh, we'll look at that later as we study it. But, uh, hey, you've got to pray rightly. You've got to ask God, but you've got to ask Him in faith. Everybody say, in faith. You see, there's our prayer life. It's not just asking God. It's asking in faith. Jeremiah 33, 3 says this. Call unto me, and I will what? answer you. Everyone say he'll answer us. We've been talking about praying and seeking God on Sunday morning. 
you got to ask God. If you lack wisdom, you ask God because He's the source. Call unto me and I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not. And this is what I like about that. You read it and study the Hebrew. Uh, he'll, it says He will show you things and of uncover things in your life that you did not know. He will give you wisdom and revelation. I'm telling you something. In the middle of your pressure moment, you got to learn to pray right under pressure. Most people don't pray right under pressure. How, many, how do most people pray under pressure? They don't pray in faith. They pray in fear. Oh, God! Help me, Jesus! I need a miracle, Lord! We think that's spiritual. James gets right to the point. Listen, that's not going to get you anywhere. You've got to ask in faith. And let me just tell you about this thing, asking in faith. He, he will answer you. You gotta believe that. You gotta trust that. And trials, when you, hey, if you're gonna ask in faith, if you don't ask in faith, there's some serious ramifications. Look what he says. He's a warning. Verse six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Everyone say no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from God. We better, we better erase that part. Because that doesn't line up with most of our prayers, does it? We just think we just just throw throw you know a couple hail marys up, and heaven comes rushing in our behalf. Some last ditch effort prayer. Oh God, I need your miracle, Jesus. You know what James said? Don't expect to be don't expect me to God to answer that prayer. Don't expect that you'll get anything from God because listen. Your crying does not move God. Our whining does not move the hand of God. Our begging does not move the hand of God. What moves the hand of God? Our faith. When we pray in faith. Well, I don't have much faith. You don't need much. Faith is grain of mustard seed. Say this mountain be removed. Don't doubt in your heart. That's what Jesus said in Mark 11, 23. We've got to pray in faith. An old big warning here. <clears throat> if you let doubt in, it will undermine your destiny. Think of Adam and Eve. How did humanity get undermined? By terrible, tragic sin of immorality and ungodliness? No, the seed of doubt. Slipping in through the serpent who said, Hath God said? Doubt. Let me tell you something. Doubt will keep you in the pit. Doubt will keep you. Listen, you can whine and complain. We can, we can beg, borrow. You know, rock, paper, do whatever you want, you know. Oh, maybe, you know, play the lottery. What, I, I'm just telling you, hey, those don't move the hand of God. It's faith. And if you hear anything in this series, you got to hear this. That when you activate your faith and you begin to trust and believe God, it will move the hand of God in your behalf. You just got to pass the test. It's proper praying under pressure. Most people don't pray well under pressure. They're prayer warriors instead of prayer warriors. Just one letter difference, I think, but a whole world of difference in results. Okay? Now, look at verse 6 and 7. Verse, uh, verse 7 for let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. Catch this. 
unstable in all his ways. Not just in certain areas of his life. Let me tell you something. Doubt cannot be compartmentalized in your world. You can't, well, I just doubt, I just doubt really if the world's only 6,000 years old. I just doubt that one thought, everything else. I just, or I just doubt this. I just, and, and you just try to come, but everything else I believe, but I just, let me tell you something. Doubt is like a cancer. It invades every area of your life. And he says, you become unstable in how many of your ways? All your ways. And James comes to this scattered church. By the way, they're, they're, they're doing good. They're preaching the word and he, the word and people are getting saved and the church is growing and God's plan is being realized. And he comes into the middle of their, their, their trouble and their trauma and their pressures and their, of life. And he says, you're going to have to get a whole new level of faith to keep you moving forward. And then finally, and I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'll hit this one quickly, uh, another faith building uh, block, faith uh, building block of faith under pressure is proper perspective about prosperity. Now, this is verse 9 through 11. I'm going to hit it quickly. He, he says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field... Uh, he, but because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its be- beautiful appearance perishes. <coughs> so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now, what he's just saying here is, hey, in the middle of all this, don't get your eyes on stuff. If you don't have stuff, that has no indication of your faith. <coughs> Some people think if I don't have stuff, I don't have faith. <coughs> Pardon me. In fact, because he's talking to the persecuted church, what he's really telling them, this is Pastor Sam's kind of overarching thought, is this. Your faith is at its optimum moment, not in time of blessing but in time of lacking. How many of you know when you got it all, who needs faith, right? Why do you need faith to trust God when, when you know, it's just you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth and you don't, you've got everything you need and you don't need faith? He said, hey, listen, uh, your faith is at its maximum operating capacity when you're at a time of leanness in your life. In fact, how many of you know the scripture teaches most, you know what most people are preparing for in their mind right now? Seasons of blessing. Think about it. Most people are, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do And there's nothing wrong with planning the world, your finances to where your season. But how many of you know, Scripture teaches we need to plan for seasons of leanness and be able to trust Him in times of leanness, just like we trust Him in times of plenty and vice versa. He's saying, hey, the guy, the lowly brother, hey, uh, uh, just glory in your exaltation because God will take good care. In other words, keep your attitude right. The guy with the rich, you better stay humble because it ain't going to last forever. Your faith and your future cannot be wrapped up in the things you have or the things you do not have. It's a greater God perspective about eternity. Amen. You know what Paul said in Philippians 4, and I'll close. He talked about he had seasons of blessing, seasons of leanness, and he learned that in whatever state he was in, to be content. You know what, the, what he was saying here? Whatever state I'm in, whether I'm overflowing with blessing or it's a time of leanness, I'm content. What's he saying? My faith is not affected by what I have and do not have or do not have. My faith is in him. And I'm standing strong and I'm enduring the process. Amen. Did you know this? And and I think this interesting, uh, James threw this in here about finances and resources and, and proper perspective about money. Did you know that some people say it this way, there's the three big stumbling blocks of life, gold, glory, and girls. You ever heard that? Gold, 
money, things. You know, what's, what's all in the world? The lust of the eye, the lust of the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Gold, glory, and girls. And so here, Paul, uh, pardon me, James comes along to this letter, this persecuted church who are doing good. They're, the gospel's being preached. He just says, hey, you better keep your, your attitude straight concerning resources. It's not, ba- hey, it's not all about sacking it up and enjoying the good life. Nor is it about being a pauper. It's about the right attitude regardless of where you are with finances. Don't let finances, don't serve you. Don't serve finances. Let finances serve you. Are you with me? Amen. So, hey, proper perspective about prosperity is so very important as we endure the process. Let's stand up together tonight. Hallelujah. I skipped a little, but I knew I needed to. Let's ask God to speak to us through this teaching of the word tonight. Lord, you want us to endure the processes of life. and You want us to be men and women of faith. We pray you'd help us build our faith. Have a proper perspective about the pressures of life. And have a proper methodology in praying under pressure and believe you and trust you. Lord, we just ask you to help us build our faith. And Lord, help us keep our eyes on the prize and not on the things of this world. We thank you for it today. Build our faith as we endeavor to build our faith and grow strong in you. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen.